You know, I thought about this last night. When a space shuttle is re-entering the Earth's atmosphere and encounters something, I think, as I understand, it's right about 62 miles above the surface of the Earth, it leaves the vacuum of space and starts hitting atmosphere, right? It starts hitting air molecules. And at speeds that are supersonic, the space shuttle blasts into air at such a force that the air starts to push back on the shuttle. It creates atmospheric drag. The atmospheric drag feels a lot like turbulence. Starts to get a little bit warm on the spacecraft and its occupants. It's a tense phase. It's great for movies, right? Atmospheric drag, this resistance that the shuttle hits on its way back to the planet. And if the pilot didn't know that was the plan, they'd be tempted to pull up and bounce off the surface of the atmosphere back into outer space. But they know to expect atmospheric drag. And so they continue on the right trajectory into it and through it so that they're able to come back home. To a pilot re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, hitting atmospheric drag means they're on the right path home. They know that's the plan. And we see today in John 15, I invite you to turn in your Bibles back to John chapter 15. We'll pick it up again in verse 18. We're going to see the plan that Jesus shares in our passage. And if I was going to give a title to Jesus' plan here in this passage, it would be this. How to die in a world that hates you. Or really, Jesus. Right? How to die in a world that hates you. Or really, more appropriately, Jesus. Now, admittedly, that is not a title that I find appealing. Believe it. I worked hard this week to be able to find a way to make this title, How to Thrive in a World that Hates Jesus. I wanted that so bad for us. But I couldn't get away from the fact that that's not what Jesus said. And let, let me recap what we did as we started to understand this passage last week and really we're going to amplify and expand on where we left off last week. Last week we saw from, with Pastor Steve that people in this world's system have Jesus hate, right? And Jesus hate is ultimately father hate. God the father hate. The world hates Jesus' followers because ultimately the world hates Jesus. That, that's what we saw last week. And so here we are again in John chapter 15, verse 18. We're in the upper room in the final moments as Jesus shares with a group of just 11 of his closest friends now, his plan for their future. And this is what he says. Let's just read the passage as a whole, all the way down into 16 verse 4, because admittedly, John, as he writes this gospel by inspiration of the Spirit, just circles around themes over and over and over again. Every three sentences, he comes back to the same idea he just left off. So we're going to kind of float all over this passage this morning. And let's read it as a comprehensive whole then right now. It says this. If the world hates you, Jesus speaking, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. When the Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And will do these, they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What I'm going to say, and what I believe Jesus says in this passage, hangs on this reality. Maybe put out as a sentence. It's this. We can know that sin is exposed by Jesus and hates the glory of God and just may kill you, but it doesn't need to defeat you. This is what everything I'm going to say today hangs on. We can know that sin is exposed by Jesus and hates the glory of God and just may kill you, but it doesn't need to defeat you. I think we can put that up on the screens. This is the idea that we're going to circle around and work from for the rest of the morning. This is the one-sentence summary of the whole thing. And we're going to break it down piece by piece, starting off with this concept of sin is and what it is that we know about it. We maybe ought to make certain that we understand what sin is. Can we make sure we're all on the same page? There are two minutes. Give me two minutes here about this. You know, at the end of the day, Paul shared a great summary in Romans 3.23, where he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. We've fallen short. We lack the glory of God. We miss the mark. Like Purdue and Indiana did. Even though I had them playing the championship game in my bracket. Fallen short. We all lack the glory of God. But what does that mean? In the same letter, Paul had laid out why God's wrath was against people who sin. And what he chose to highlight was this. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes on to say, they were claiming to be wise, but they became fools and exchanged. Here's the idea. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says humanity exchanged the glory of God 
for other lesser things. That is the heart of it. The essence of sin is we lack the glory of God because we've traded it away. We've looked at it and we hated it. And we decided instead to prefer other things. We looked at his beauty and his greatness and his holiness and we couldn't contain our hate against it. Our natural state was to be blind to it out of our hate of it. Instead, we thought, you know, instead of God, I prefer myself. You know, that I, prefer my, I, I prefer my family. I prefer this style of living. I prefer sex or, or pleasure or, or food or I prefer people's affirmation of who I am. I prefer anything else. Anything else other than God's glory. Sin is preferring anything to God's glory. We exchanged enjoying and worshiping and being in the glory of God what we were created to do and be for something else. And as humans, as humans on this side of Eden, you and I have this as our factory preset condition. This is how we are from the start. And here in this upper room, Jesus says, as he explains his plan for the days to come, he says that us sinners operate in a way that is against the glory of God, but seems like good to us. It seems like good to us. He says in verse 19, if you were of this world, then the world would love you as its own. Like, you'd experience love from sinners if, if you lived in sin. There's community there. There's appreciation there. People living in sin react in hate towards people who live for the glory of God and they think they are worshiping their God, whatever their definition of God is. Sin may feel like worship and love or living your best life. As Jesus opens the door to help us understand how sin looks and feels and tastes to us on this side of Eden. Not only should Christians not be surprised when they hate persecution then, they also shouldn't be surprised when slaves to sin see themselves in a good light. That is something Jesus acknowledges right up front. Hey, you'll experience successful and influential lifestyles. You'll experience communities of acceptance for one another. There's going to be sincere sense of worship in a life of sin. Evidently, Jesus wanted us to know as we were preparing to go along with his plan where we would face persecution, he wanted us to face that persecution successfully by understanding realities around sin. So, that's sin, but sin is exposed by Jesus. We need to know that sin is exposed by Jesus and those who love him. This was a major element of last week's message, right? Jesus hates his father hate, and they hate those who love Jesus and the Father as well. And that brought us back to a challenging question. I was so challenged by this. Do I look enough like Jesus to make other people uncomfortable? And I was challenged by that question last week. But why this exposure? What exactly does Jesus, the, the light and the truth and the way, what does Jesus do that makes sinful people react this way to, to have their sin exposed? What is it that Jesus does that exposes sin? 
That's what really Jesus doubles down on this passage. This is what we're going to spend most of our time this morning noticing. In John 15, 22, Jesus says this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. What does Jesus mean when he says his presence and his works and really the next, his perfection, they expose sin? How does that make people guilty? Is he saying that if he never came, we wouldn't be guilty of sin? No. He's not saying that. Well, then how did Jesus' words and works and perfection cause people to be guilty? But I think there's a couple layers here it's worth unpacking. First, let's know exactly what it is that they are guilty of. What is the sin that these people that Jesus had been interacting with in the city of Jerusalem and in his ministry on earth, what was it that his presence exposed in their lives? What was their sin? And I, I imagine, like all people, these people had sinful natures. They maybe had a laundry list of sins in their life that Jesus might have been thinking about. You know, actually, just like any group of people from any section of humanity. But pay attention. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now, but now that I've come and spoken, but now they have no excuse for their sin. What's this sin? What, what is it that's inexcusable now? He says next, whoever hates me hates my father also. That's the sin. That's the sin that Jesus is exposing ultimately in these people's hearts. Hating Jesus, hating God the Father. I'll say it another way, not believing in Jesus, not believing in God the Father. He goes on to repeat the whole thing in case we missed it. Verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Same thing. These people that Jesus had been showing up to and serving around and doing signs and miracles in front of, he had been teaching and explaining God's heart and God's way. He had been interacting with these religious leaders in this Israelite nation that was called by God's name. And they all had this pretense of loving and worshiping God. That's who Jesus served to. Primarily, he served to an audience of people who all claimed to worship and know and love God. And yet, Jesus says that God showed up to them. The God-man was there with them and did signs and shared his truth, and they hated him. They hated him. They rejected him. Forget all the outward appearances in their life. Turns out, in reality, they didn't believe in God at all. There's further evidence in just a minute or two further into the conversation, Jesus is going to label their sin as disbelief once again. If you jump down to chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says, and, and when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, when, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, here it is, their sin, because they do not believe in me. The sin they're ultimately guilty of here is not believing in 
Jesus. Not believing the clearest picture of God. Jesus himself. Which maybe begins to answer a second question we ought to ask. As we understand how Jesus exposes sin. How how is Jesus connected here? Well, Jesus exposed that disbelief, that sin... I think really very much like the law before Jesus had exposed sin. Very much like the law that the Israelites were, in theory, following and practicing and obeying, exposed their sin. Jesus exposed their sin. You know, the law, I'll take one minute aside. That is actually three minutes. Um, the law was, was the revelation of God to the Israelite nation under Moses' leadership, And Paul said the purpose of the law, all through Romans, was this. He said that the law had come so that they could have knowledge of their sin. Their inability to be right before God by their own effort. He says in Romans 3, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then he goes on to say, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And then Paul continues and he says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. This is very much like when Jesus came. And in the law's circumstances, what happened before the law, before the knowledge of God's law, sin seemed like it was dead, Paul is saying. Sin seemed like it was dead. They, they had no knowledge of who they were before God, ultimately. Sin was unrecognized. It was unstirred. Maybe, to borrow Jesus' perspective here, it looked like love and like worship and like life to its fullest. That's what sin looks like. But it was still there. It was just in complete control. And so it didn't look like it was there. You know what this feels like. You ever met somebody in life? They were probably your kids. You ever met somebody in life who was absolutely agreeable, 100% amiable, just a joy to be around, as long as everything, every time, no matter what, went their way? You ever know anybody like that? They still need to grow up a whole lot, don't they? Because when something goes wrong, suddenly you realize that they're not actually amiable. They're not actually enjoyable at all. You just had no... context to understand that yet that's the same thing with the law that's what sin was to the law for humanity you hardly knew sin was even sin at first until the law showed up and suddenly oh man it was everywhere the law exposed sin until jesus came and exposed sin even more Jesus has exposed our sin with his truthful words, this passage says, and through his powerful works. He showed what righteousness was and justice and grace and mercy and his powerful right to save and redeem. Jesus was the most dramatic contrast to sin humanity has ever seen. By the words he spoke and the works he did, by his perfection, sin was exposed by Jesus And with that exposure came guilt if you didn't believe. Which means the people in Jerusalem with Jesus and you and I as we read of him and speak of him today, we have had our sin exposed by him. 
But this reality maybe begs one more question. I realize. What about the people who never knew the law or have never heard of Jesus? To say it another way, if Jesus is the light of the world, are there people that had no access to this light? What's up with them? Are they guilty? Like Jesus says, his audience was guilty. Maybe let me start by saying this. Scripture doesn't have a whole lot to say specifically about a segment of humanity that we might plainly see and know is not able to discern reality, isn't able to discern spiritual truth. People like infants, people with severe mental or physical disabilities. Scripture doesn't have a ton to say specifically about what theological realities are going on there. But I share a theory with others. Maybe it's not a full-fledged theology, but it's a theory. My theory for those circumstances is this. I can trust our good God to do what is consistent with his good character, even if he hasn't revealed this plan to its fullest extent. And as I see it, that means he welcomes that segment of humanity into his presence. That's the way I see it. And you can, you can see glimpses of that through God's word, but that's maybe outside of our purpose this morning. Really, our purpose this morning begs this question. What about the Aztec Empire, right? Or the First Nations of the Americas or the uh, uh, Australian continents? What about people who maybe couldn't have known the law or the light at the time they were alive? What about them? God's word makes it clear that creation and conscience are sufficient for accountability before him. Creation and conscience are sufficient for accountability before God. We go back to Romans to see that in chapter 1. What has been known about God, Paul says, is plain to all the ungodly, to them, because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. We see that we are without excuse because of the external witness of creation and then really the internal witness of conscience. We've been created in his image and then placed into his creation. And that is enough, God says, to be accountable to him. But Jesus seems to indicate here that there are degrees of accountability. Evidently, while we're all accountable, there are degrees of accountability. After demonstrating who he was in this Jewish community, one of the things that Jesus had said to them, and you can read it in Matthew 11, was this. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable. There's a range of tolerability here. There's a range of accountability and punishment. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Man, Jesus references cities and communities of people who are infamous for their sin. And he says, it's better for them than for you who have been exposed to who I am and yet have rejected me. Jesus says that the degree of accountability is contingent. The degree of accountability, though everyone is accountable, is contingent. It's worse for you, Jesus is saying, religious people rejecting me, even though I'm here with you, because you had the opportunity to have your sin exposed by the brightest light, to see the way of faith 
by and through the giver of that faith. Think of Luke 12 where Jesus shares the parable of the two servants who had not done what they were supposed to do. And both of them are accountable. They didn't do what they were supposed to do and they both get punished. But Jesus says in this parable, one of the servants actually knew the instructions. He knew what he was supposed to do. The other servant didn't even know what he was supposed to do. He just hadn't done it anyway. And Jesus says they're both accountable. They both get punished, but it's more severe a punishment for the one who understood, the one who knew, and still didn't do it. Evidently to Jesus, the more light, the more liability. The more light someone has, the more liable they are to that light before him. Rejection of the gospel, as shared and demonstrated by Jesus himself then in this moment, is the chief sin. And it comes with great guilt. Maybe let me summarize this. Everyone who can know anything about God is accountable to God. But those who know more and more about God's truth and God's gospel are more and more accountable to him. Jesus was the most clear demonstration of God in the gospel. He says he exposes sin. But he also says his followers expose sin as well. He says the helper is going to come who I will send, the spirit of truth proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he says, I've exposed sin by my presence of truth and teaching. The Spirit is going to come and bear witness about me and do the same thing. And you are going to bear witness, my apostles, and by extension, all who are in the family of faith. Sin is exposed by Jesus then and those who love him. All of this is, is this, okay? All of this comes down to this. Lines have been drawn in the sand here at this moment. And Jesus is the one who drew them. The revealed Jesus demands a response. And Jesus says the responses are twofold. Belief or rebellion. Belief or rejection. There is no other middle ground. Jesus doesn't leave that option. You follow and love and believe God or you hate God. And everyone's accountable to whatever amount of light they've received. We've all received enough. We're a lover of God or a hater of God. Jesus says it in verse 24. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. That was their choice. The word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me. Without a cause. Even more than David in Psalm 69, which Jesus said prophesied him. Jesus was blameless and yet hated. We know that sin is exposed by Jesus and hates the glory of God. That's the, the next unfolding of our overarching truth. Sin is exposed by Jesus and hates the glory of God and those who love his glory. Outside of Christ, when we are not alive in Christ, we by nature are haters of God. And then, haters of anyone who loves God's glory. And before you think, oh, wait a second though. It's okay to be on the side of the camp where people hate you because they hated God. Because I remember that David who wrote that psalm, who said, everyone hates me without a cause. 
He faced an Israelite and God-fading hater. I remember that. He faced down a hater. He was a big guy. Goliath was his name, I think, right? But when he faced that God-hating and Israelite-hating hater, God gave him victory. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this is good. This is good. Because I also remember, I remember others. Didn't, didn't Joseph kind of one-up all of his haters in his life by becoming like the vice pharaoh or something? We're like, it's exciting to be on the side of the camp where people hate you because they hate God because God gives you a great victory. But Jesus doesn't tease unrestrained, triumphant thinking here, does he? He says in 16 verse 2, they will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when, and he assumes this, whoever kills you, that's an assumption, Whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Sinful humanity is exposed by Jesus and hates God and just may kill you. And they certainly did. First Jesus, then Stephen, and then untold numbers of believers after to this day. This is what servants of this master can expect. One of the ladies here in our church said that to me this week as we were reflecting on this passage. This is what servants of this master can expect. Believer, if you're a believer, God may call you to die in a world that hates him. And he calls you to lay down your life in the meantime anyway. I wonder. What loss or hate or grief or threat do we live with because Jesus has made us alive to know his glory? I think of the poem by uh, Amy Carmichael. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I see thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright descendant star. Hast thou no scar? No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Jesus had just said that he had chosen us for fruit. Then he said in verse 19 that he chose us for opposition. Jesus allows for this in his plan. It's not necessarily Jesus' plan for this stage of his kingdoms unfolding on earth for his followers to escape persecution, for his followers to fight back for their safety, or for his followers to prosper in security. That isn't his plan right now, necessarily. This is how Jesus prepared his followers to live, to die in a world that hated him. Know that sinful humanity is exposed by Jesus and hates the glory of God and just may kill you. But it doesn't need to defeat you. That's what Jesus unveils here in this moment. He says, I've said all these things to you, verse 1 of 16. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. 
Jesus shared all of this so that the effects of sin inside this image-bearing humanity that we're all born into wouldn't need to defeat anyone who's chosen by him. I find this compelling. Hard, but compelling. Jesus wasn't concerned about protecting his disciples from meeting the persecutor's sword. That wasn't his plan. He was concerned about protecting his followers from unbelief. That was the greatest danger he perceived. Unbelief is more dangerous than death. Unbelief is more dangerous than loss of status or ease of living or athletic or academic prowess or a thriving social life. Those things aren't the threats that Jesus wanted his followers to be concerned about. Not even the loss of their life. What he wanted his followers to fight against, what he championed in sharing this plan to his followers was giving them everything they needed to endure all of those things and yet still believe. Do we live as if that is true, that the greatest threat I or my family will face is unbelief. Is that how we order our lives? That I know the most dangerous thing in my existence, in my family's existence, is that they might not believe. So everything in my life follows under that reality. That seems to be the plan Jesus is sharing with his disciples right now. So he shared a glimpse of this plan, a glimpse of the future. You've been forewarned, Jesus says. This is the strategy. That's how you die in a world that hates me. And that's the strategy Jesus himself would be following, isn't it? Like a lamb to the slaughter. So we could live, he laid down his life. Sin doesn't need to defeat you because Jesus provides redemption from and victory over sin. So then, what do you do with all this reality? A few closing thoughts. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Jesus shared his plan so that sin wouldn't need to defeat his followers because he was going to provide redemption from and victory over sin. So we ought to believe in him and, and heed the warning Jesus shared. It's possible to live feeling like your life is full, like you're entering into peace, like you're experiencing joy, like you are worshiping God and yet hate him. That's what sin does to us. But it doesn't need to defeat you. Would you respond to the light Jesus has shown you today to stop living on your own merits, to stop being the architect of your own life and instead submit to the truth he's revealed about himself and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the way and the truth of the life and repent of your sins and believe in him. Believe in Jesus. I think another thing we must choose to do is make war on our sin. As Jesus reveals himself, he exposes sin. In the lost, the yet to believe, yes. But also, Jesus exposes sin in our 
hearts, even those who already believe. The more you see Jesus clearly, the more you become aware, the more he convicts us of the areas in our life that are not preferring his glory over anything. As he does, we ought to repent and cling to the gospel and aggressively make no provision for sin to linger on. I remember I was maybe 19 years old. I was dating somebody, my very first dating relationship, and we had just been dating for a a handful of weeks, six weeks or something, but it was Christmas season, so that put us in an awkward place. What kind of gift do you buy for somebody who's, you just started dating? And to make matters worse, I was going to meet her folks for the very first time. So what kind of gift do you get for them, or do you? Or like, it was complicated, right? But lo and behold, they gave me a gift, her parents. They were great. They were great. They loved Jesus. And they gave me a gift. And I could tell it was a book, right? And I was in college studying to be a pastor, so I, I could predict the kind of book it might be, a spirituality book, something great like that. And <clears throat> thankfully, I didn't open it in front of them. I, I got back to the dorm room, and I opened up this book. And the book was from the parents of the girl I was dating, Overcoming Sin and Temptation by John Owen. (laughs) You know, I thought that I had gotten off pretty nice. Like, he didn't seem like the type of guy who was going to be cleaning the shotgun to make a show. Then again, he gave me a book where the author was going to say, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. (laughs) Message received, good sir. Is that the attitude we understand we need to have about sin? As Jesus exposes it, we realize it makes us want to prefer things more than God. It makes us want to be haters of him. But Jesus has made it possible for us to not be defeated by it. And so we kill it. Then we show grace in speaking truth. We show grace in speaking truth. I see that all over this passage. That we're all image bearers. That we're all slaves to sin. That we all hated God. The unbelievers don't hate believers. They hate God. They don't know him. And there was a time that you and I didn't either. Jesus exposes sinful people. And that hate in their heart then is a sign of great importance. That hate in the heart means they're about to be held more liable. Or they're about to be liberated. They've just come in contact with reality. Do we see that? The most dangerous state for someone in your community is that they're happy and treat you happily. It's a sign of great importance if they react in hate towards God or you because it means Jesus is exposing something in them and it might be the beginning of how he liberates them, maybe through you, or maybe that they'll be more liable to what they now see in God. In a world of sinful people who may even want to oppose us, church, we don't go to war against them. We go to be witnesses to them. In compassionate grace, how might we bear witness to the truth? Then we have confidence in facing that opposition. Jesus, let us know we're always doing the right thing as we reveal him, as we serve like him, as we tell of him. 
Even if it doesn't seem successful, even if it brings war and opposition to our front door, Jesus told us that was the plan. And so we can have confidence in that moment. It's atmospheric drag. You have to go through it. And when you hit it, you know you're on the right path home. I'll let Paul's words to the Philippian church be my closing thought. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake.